Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina. Hello, farmers and friends. My name is Dan Miller. This program is all about the largest industry in North Carolina, agriculture. On this week's show, we'll talk with Dr. Catherine Drake-Stowe about the present and future of soybeans. And Jeff Turner will be here in just a moment as we check out the headlines. Farmers, if you have a minute and want to sit in on the agriculture conservation easement workshops coming up, workshops are targeted really for local government, land trust, and conservation nonprofits. But there's some good information about ag conservation easement life cycles presented at the meetings. Here are some dates and locations. November 2nd in Kinston, November 7th in Chapel Hill, and November 16th in Newland, North Carolina. If that piques your interest, registration is required. You can go to ncadfp.org. Ag and NC is produced by Interbanks Media and sponsored by Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Jeff Turner is the COO of Murphy Family Ventures, member of the North Carolina Board of Ag, friend of ours, and co-host of the program. Jeff, how goes it in D.C.? I got to tell you, Dan, if I was any better, you know, I've been sitting on my hands all day just to keep from clapping. It's <laughs> such a good time. <laughs> We're almost at the end of hurricane season, and uh, we dodged a bullet this year. But I, Another reason to clap. <laughs> I, you know, almost concerned about moisture, but the truth is, is we've got the moisture that we've needed pretty much at the right time without the hurricanes. We have, and, you know, it, it appears we're going to have a cool, damp winter, according to the forecast. We'll see. As I've always said, economists and weathermen or meteorologists, sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. We could make a comment about what's going on in the United States House of Representatives, but unless we did this to the exact second, it would change. Or maybe it wouldn't change. <laughs> maybe it wouldn't change. Or it wouldn't change. <laughs> Therein lies the problem. It's not changing. So, <laughs> By the way, in November is municipal elections. Early voting has begun in North Carolina, and about 385 of the municipalities need a photo ID to vote this year, so you have to prove you are who you are. doesn't seem like a bad idea to me. You know, we voted on that several years ago, and it got beat back and beat back in lawsuits by our governor. Even though the people spoke, they found it somehow to try to call it unconstitutional. But about everything I do, I have to have a photo ID. Or a fingerprint just to get into my phone. Oh, yeah. We did not have a, a, a good week as far as the North Carolina ag gag law. The Supreme Court, I don't even have much to report about what they said about it because the truth is they just refused to overturn just, the lower court. They chose not to hear the case basically, and remanded it back. The end result is that the ag-gag law is in limbo and it's not enforceable. Now, can they go back and tweak it somehow and do something different to it, possibly? At the end of the day, they're trying to say that it's that it's okay to bring a camera onto my farm and put every animal at risk on my farm from a biosecurity standpoint and take pictures of me that says I'm doing something wrong to my animals, even though they just put the entire herd at risk from a biosecurity standpoint. I hope they can go back and tweak it and run it again and let them shoot darts at it one more time. Looks like turkey prices will be better this year than last year. One reason is we're not in the same situation as we were last year with number of infections of high pathogen avian influenza. Although there now is a third state that has reported that day, a turkey flock, this time Minnesota, tested positive, and it is migratory bird time. Yeah, it's always a threat with all the ducks and, of course, the geese that come. And, of course, we have resident geese now. I don't, they're called Canadians, but I think they're North Carolina geese. But, yeah, I, I think the, the more uh, of the migratory bird population and they come from that direction, it, it could be a problem for us. But so far, we've had, a, we've had a good year so far. Let me read you a couple of headlines and see if you can see how all of these go together. 
High feed costs straining many of the hog operations this year. We talked on last week's program about the fact that there's no money in dairy farming. Virginia Tech says in their latest survey that the American farmer and the farmers of the world are not growing efficiency at the capacity to be able to meet our world population by 2050. The average age of the American farmer is 58. And I read two press releases this week from the United States Department of Agriculture with incentives for younger farmers to get into agriculture. But if there's not enough money in agriculture, why would you want to jump in if you are a young person? The only thing that you can incent most people to get involved in and dedicate their life and, and work hard at every day is the money. And if anyone ever tells you it's not about the money, they're lying. It's always about the money. And if you can't be profitable and you can't make a good living for you and your family, you're highly likely not to participate. Uh, I will participate in something because of passion until I have to put my name on a note for hundreds and millions of dollars. The bank wants their money back along with 7.5%. In the Biden world that we live in today, you know, a lot of these guys and gals who grew up, they only know about 2% interest and 3% interest. Quick example, $100,000 note for five years, 3% interest. At the end of the note, total amount of interest paid back, $7,800. In the stratosphere that we're in now, same note, $100,000, five years, 18% interest, total interest paid back $52,360. I've said it before, I think on this program, first home Linda and I bought, we got a 15-year mortgage at 18%, and I thought the banker had done me the biggest favor in the world. So we've lived through high interest rates in the past, but trying to make that work today with borrowed money with the margins there are in farming is quite difficult. Anytime you can make 7.5% gross on anything and bring it home, that's pretty big, but if the bank's got to get theirs first, doesn't leave much for everybody else. This question is more about storage capacity than it is about anything else. For the first time in quite some time, there's a pretty good consensus on the fact that sell soybeans now, sell corn later. Average North Carolina farmer, what kind of capacity do they have to be able to store corn? Years ago, there were uh, there was a program, a USDA program, that provided uh, for storage. And so a lot of farmers back in the 70s, they had ample capacity to store their grain. That, that's not quite the same way today. I don't think there's as much on-farm storage as there has been in the past. I, mean, I could be corrected on that. If you think about the ability to utilize the crop as it comes out of the field at hog and poultry, Feed processing at the mills that we have, especially in eastern North Carolina, it comes off the farm right into feed in a lot of cases. Feed prices, hog prices, one going up, one going down. It was just made sense to become a contract grower. As the as contracts, uh, as we go forward in contracts, if we see that uh, feed costs up and the uh, the overall price for hogs is, uh, I think we're in a losing proposition almost at this particular point. Losing to break even at best. Yeah. And what does that mean for contracts going forward? Most hog farmers and poultry farmers or folks who grow animals on their farm. Obviously, they have no market risk as long as the integrator can make some money and pay you. If you have processing plants, if you process chickens or you process hogs or whatever, uh, your raw material comes off the farm. If they stay in business, they got to have raw material to process and turn into bacon and ham and chicken legs and wings. So from a risk management standpoint, um, having that contract arrangement in place 
provides a, a, a pretty good amount of, of risk management. You still have disease to worry about and you still have to have the labor, the utilities, being able to source labor and, and being able to pay for the LP gas and the, all, all of those things are still risky, but you don't have to worry about the commodity price. And that's, uh, that's really comforting. I got to tell you, you look across the United States, there are a good number of hog production larger groups. They're struggling. They're really struggling. In fact, a number of pretty good size operations have, have gone bankrupt. And it's not new. It's, it's, it's a cycle. It is truly a cycle. Uh, risk management is how we got to the current arrangement because people went out along the way. And, and this, right. this is a better system or at least a sustainable system, I should say. At the moment, it is. The change is the only thing is constant, isn't it? Not death and taxes, says Ben Franklin. Coming up in just a moment, Dr. Kathleen Drake-Stowe about soybeans and a new soybean collaborative. But she's in North Carolina, in Edgecombe County, and on the horn. What's your eyewitness soybean forecast? So I think most people would say it's about average. We had a, a slow start with that cooler spring that we had. Things looked pretty good for a little bit, and then we got dry. Um, I think our full-season beans are a better position than our, our double-crop beans. So I, I don't think we're going to see a, a gangbuster year, but I, I think North Carolina probably is in a better situation than some of the Midwest that has been extremely dry. And, and so I, I think that we're looking at a fairly average crop is what I've been told. You know, the fun thing about my job is that I get to travel all across the U.S. and, and hear from other people. Probably the thing that I like least about my job is I don't get to spend as much time in the field with North Carolina farmers. And, and so um, a lot of this is hearsay. Oh, and she adds a disclaimer. Coming up in just a moment, we'll find out more about what that job is for Dr. Kathleen Drake-Stowe when we continue on Ag in North Carolina. Bill Carone Cars and Wallace is now the only Chevy GMC dealer in eastern North Carolina to be an Ag Pack dealer, which means any farmer who buys a vehicle at Bill Carone is eligible for more than $30,000 in savings on products that you already use, everything from tires to crop products. Check out the advantages of the Ag Pack program at Bill Carone Cars in Wallace and online. You're listening to Agriculture in North Carolina on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Thanks in part to Donna Byram with First Choice Insurance Partners. Call Donna today at 252-792-1189. Let her protect your yield so you can stay in the field. Dr. Kathleen Drake-Stowe is the director of the U.S. Soybean Research Collaborative. On this program, we try to use the Ph.D. where it's due. Oh, you're kind. You can call me anything. <laughs> so a little bit different. We'll start off with the who are you the what is the U.S. Soybean Research Collaborative, why does it exist, and where do you hope to make an impact? All right, so with that said, tell us a little bit about who you are. So I am a North Carolina native, grew up in North Carolina in the eastern part of the state, Edgecombe County, on a small family farm there, and then went to NC State and did my three degrees at NC State and have stayed in North Carolina since. I actually did my undergrad in, in uh, textile chemistry. I thought growing up on a farm, I tried to get as far away from agriculture as I could, and textile chemistry sounded like a pretty good way to do that. And lo and behold, ag kind of tugs at your heartstrings, and I ended up um, doing my master's and PhD in the crop science department, actually in tobacco breeding and genetics. And then after I graduated, I went to work for the North Carolina Soybean Producers Association as their research director and transitioned about a year and a half ago to this new project called the U.S. Soybean Research Collaborative. And so while I um, work for states across the U.S., I still live in North Carolina and still very much have a heart for North Carolina ag. All right, so what is the U.S. Soybean Research Collaborative and how is it funded? So the U.S. Soybean Research Collaborative is a partnership between individual, regional, and national soybean state checkoff organizations. And so it's, it's funded by a number of these different entities. 
Each of these organizations is an independent organization. So the North Carolina Soybean Producers, the Iowa Soybean Association, the Illinois Soybean Association, they're all independent entities. They all have their own budgets, their own boards, their own funding priorities. But there are a number of shared goals between these organizations. And so our goal is really to extend the individual investments of these organizations by collaborating across entities. Ag is changing. What our farmers need is changing. What our end users want is changing. So our goal is to drive research that's going to help farmers meet these changes and challenges. The questions that farmers have today are are, are bigger and different than they were 20 years ago. And so it's going to be it's going to take thinking about research differently to answer those questions. And so that's really our goal. How can we pull together different funding partners, different researchers to really answer these different questions that our farmers have today? So you kind of answered the question, why do you exist in there, right? Right. Yeah. So it's really to pull resources to answer big questions. It's to answer questions that we haven't been able to traditionally answer. It's to kind of broaden this value chain view between supply and demand. So traditionally in the soybean space, we've had our supplier production research side of things, and then we've had our market demand folks. And we don't always link the two very well. So how can we do a better job helping our researchers in the lab or in the field understand how their work is going to impact a grower's access to the marketplace? And how can we do a better job working with the marketplace to understand what their needs are so our researchers are providing technologies and products and practices that are going to allow our soybean growers really to to meet those demands? For Edgecombe County girl, you talk pretty fast. I do talk pretty fast. From from pine tops, no doubt. Yes, sir. You know, if you think about, you said this is a new group, I think you said established in 22, is that correct? Yes, sir, yes. So we've been going for about a year and a half now. If you go back and you think of there's the American Soybean Association, there's the United Soybean Board, there's the export folks, what, do you work with those folks as well or is or are you more centered around the research piece? So, so both to answer that question. Yes. So we work directly with those partners, but with the lens of research. And so how, how do we bring research needs to those partners? So if we think about the American Soybean Association, they definitely have a policy focus to be able to impact useful policy for our growers, they have to have data to back that up. So how do we understand what the research needs are on the policy side of things to make sure that we're, we're getting the data that's needed to, to drive those decisions? It's, it is a co- true collaboration between state and federal agencies to, to let research drive policy, let research drive the development of, I guess, new hybrids or, or types of soybeans. Yeah, exactly. New varieties, new types of soybeans, new production practices, new ways just to do a better job documenting what our soybean growers are doing to have access to some of these markets. I go back in history a bit. It it seems like one of the first genetically modified crops that really took off was soybeans, and that was obviously the the Roundup Ready soybean. How badly are we being criticized for, for GMO yeah, another good question. As a whole in the U.S., where a good amount of our soybeans are used in the animal ag industry, as you well know, Jeff, we don't get much pushback there. But but as we are accessing these international markets, particularly as we're trying to diversify away from China, that is a real concern and something that we have to think about and address right now. I think, you know, 98% of our soybeans are genetically modified and we're finding a home for those. Europe is, they do have an exemption for products that are being used in animal feed rations. So actually, 
Europe is still importing genetically modified U.S. soy, even even with some of those restrictions. That doesn't mean there's not a market for for non-GM soy, and there's not premiums there that that growers can, and if they choose, have the option to to take advantage of that. Do you have an influence for some of the state checkoffs on where the research money goes? Yeah, so that's that's a a good way to describe it. So definitely come to me as a resource. So just this week, I actually hosted um, researchers from 15 different states in North Carolina. We got I got to host them at the North Carolina Plant Sciences Initiative and kind of share the story of of some of the great work that North Carolina is doing. But brought those individuals in to have to have a conversation among all of us um, to really think about who's the expert in which space. You said there's so many different opportunities in the research world that that not one person can understand um, and be a technical expert across all those areas, but working together and bringing together this group of individuals, we can really leverage that individual expertise across these different organizations to, to help every organization make smart, you know, to help their farmers make smarter decisions about where to send those checkoff funds and, and where to invest those checkoff funds. We have a checkoff vote. Is it every five years that it's authorized? Yeah, I think the referendum is every five years. Do, do all states today that grow soybeans, do they all participate in the checkoff? Soy checkoff, unlike the corn checkoff, is a federally mandated checkoff. And so um, regardless of what state you, you reside in, you are required to participate in the soy checkoff. Every soybean producing state, I can't think of one that, that doesn't have this, they have a soybean association. And so half of those funds go back to the state to use within the state, and then half go to, our, to the United Soybean Board, which is the national checkoff. You see soybean research broadly and specifically probably more than anybody else we get up with on a regular basis. What do you see that's coming that's kind of interesting? And So, you know, I think probably one of one of the most interesting things over the last five years is interest in, in, in I guess, demand of soybean oil in the biofuels arena. And so for years, soybean has been an extremely important ingredient for animal agriculture, but only 80% of the soybean is meal. The other 20% is all, and so that opens up some new opportunities. And the soybean checkoff has worked extremely hard for the last 20 years to really build the biofuel market. And recently, because of some of the low-carbon fuel standards and, and other initiatives and emphasis on, on sustainability that, that different um, industries are putting, soybean is now an extremely desirable feedstock for the production of not just biodiesel, but also renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. So it's been kind of fun. To, to follow that journey and to see how now oil is driving the value of the soybean versus, you know, a couple of years ago it was meal. Um, the really cool thing about soybean is that it is food and fuel. You have a national view, but I'm going to ask you to focus a little bit on your home state to say, where are we with soybean crush? Are we kind of not planning at the rate that other states are or have? So we have crush capacity in North Carolina. We've got Cargill in, uh, down in Fayetteville. We've got a much smaller facility, but um, in Cofield, the Purdue facility. But, you know, you two know our animal ag industry and the significance of that. We are still a, a net importer of soybean meal, so we're only producing about 50% of the meal in the state we need, and we've got to import the other 50% of that. As a whole, because of, of this um, new oil demand as of recent, there's been quite a bit of crush expansion announced across the United States. If all of those crush, uh, those announced crush facilities come online, we'll increase our crush capacity in the U.S. by about 30%. As I know, there are no additional crush facilities slated for North Carolina. So I don't know that our crush capacity within the state is going to change much. There have been a couple of additional facilities built um, 
in Wilmington, Schooler opened a, a transload facility at the Port of Wilmington. There is also a trans Schooler has a transload facility that they opened a couple years ago in Richmond. And then um, there's one more down in Dillon, South Carolina, another transload facility by Northwest Grains. And so there's a couple in terms of, of providing competition for, for buying those soybeans. There are a couple um, of facilities that are being open to, to provide some more competition in the state, even though we don't have another crush facility coming on board. You, you mentioned that we import 50 percent of the soybean meal that's utilized in the livestock industry. And what would the state deficit be? if you depended only on North Carolina for soybean meal or for soybeans for the meal? You're 100% accurate to say that I think like 98% of the, probably, and probably that's like nationally even, like 98% of the meal is used for animal ag. And so in North Carolina, probably a little bit more than that. I mean, 99 to 100%. If we only depended on North Carolina, how, how short would we be? Is that what you're asking? Yes, think I'm getting these numbers right. North Carolina consumes about 3 million tons a year, a meal a year. That includes both our poultry industry and the hog industry. And we are producing about 1.6 to 1.7 million acres at somewhere between 35 to 40 bushels per acre. Ends up being about 65 million bushels of soybeans produced in the state. If you work that out, that ends up being about 1.5 million tons of meal. So we would be short by 50%. We'd be short 1.5 million tons of meal if we relied only on North Carolina. Carolina soybeans, so we, we, we couldn't do it, um, or, or either those animal populations would have to decrease significantly, which would be a, a disaster to our state's economy if that were to happen. So we definitely have to have that additional meal. If we had a decent crust capacity in North Carolina, we basically would get double the use out of the soybeans. We don't lose a huge amount of nutritional value in a post-crush feeding situation, do we? No, no, I, we're not losing... I mean, that nutritional value is remaining there. Um, I mean, the beans have to be crushed to be able to to be in a form that the animals can metabolize um, in that meal form. And, and so, no, we're not losing that nutritional capacity there by crushing the beans. So the oil is gravy? Yeah, the oil is gravy. It's extra, so we got to find a home for it, and and that's where the the soybean the soybean checkoff has spent quite a bit of effort over the last um, twenty years, kind of building up that biofuel market. It can be used kind of as an alternative petroleum based product. So right now, um, you know, soy is used in this product called RoofMax, which we actually have here in North Carolina that it helps extend the life of shingles. It's used in a product called Pore Shield which extends the life of asphalt. Actually, this is made right here in the state of North Carolina in the Asheville area, pure bond plywood. So soy has replaced the formaldehyde in that plywood product. So now they're offering formaldehyde-free plywood produced right here in North Carolina where soy is used. Soy is used in sketcher shoes. It's used in Goodyear tires. It's used in various vehicle components from the oil, which is gravy, which is a kind of a fun way to think about that. It's been exciting to see soy um, in North Carolina kind of be thought of a little bit differently. So even 10 years ago, I'd say soy was kind of the redheaded stepchild of crop production in North Carolina. Everyone had soy on their farm, so they didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And now because markets for, for some of those other crops have, have changed a little bit and, and our farming rotations have changed a little bit, and, and, and I think the genetics of soybeans have, have increased and, and our growers are putting more time and effort and energy into soybeans. And so it's been really fun seeing soy become a valued crop in North Carolina and seeing our growers change their production practices to really raise that average yield and, and to make it a competitive crop on their farms. That's a fun thing to, to watch. Dr. Catherine Drake Stowe is director of the U.S. Soybean Research Collaborative and our guest on Ag and NC. 
Thanks in part to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, got to BNC, North Carolina's official business development and marketing program for agriculture. More than agriculture, it's got to BNC. Thanks to BG and April at Farmers Connection. If you've not put a hard copy in your hands recently, I recommend it. Farmers Connection is a newsprint magazine with information and ads from dealers and suppliers right here in North Carolina. Check out used equipment from dealers like Mark Chesson and Sons in Williamston, Caps Trailers in Dover, Modern Tractor in Richlands, and Premier Equipment in Rocky Mount, Enfield, Washington, and Aden. The Farmers Connection, online and available at independent farm equipment dealers all over North Carolina. Commodity numbers, last week's cattle futures closed at 184.62.5 for the week. December live cattle fell $2.12. November feeder cattle futures closed at 242.22.5. Prices hit nearly a four-month low for the week and dropped $9.35. Nearby December hog futures closed at $66 even. That marked a weekly drop of $3.55. North Carolina egg prices were steady on all sizes when compared to the prior week. The weighted average price quoted for Thursday, October the 19th for small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was 146.30 for extra large eggs, 139.36 for large, 127.09 for medium, and $92 for small eggs. Number two yellow shell corn was four to 21 cents higher when compared to last week. Prices ranged mostly 475 to 555 at the feed mills, 489 to 505 at the elevators through Thursday, October the 19th. Number one yellow soybeans were 25 and a half to 32 and a half cents higher, range mostly 1321 to 1350 and a half of the processors, mostly 1255 to 1291 at the elevators. Number two red winter wheat was steady to five cents higher, range 508 to 569 at the elevators. New crop prices quoted for harvest delivery soybeans range 1207 to 1311. That's this week's Ag and NC. You can subscribe to the longer Apple or Spotify podcast for free or download the IBX Media app and listen there. Details on all that and links to our sponsors on our website, agandnc.com. Thanks to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Agriculture in North Carolina, copyright 2023, Interbanks Media. For Jeff Turner and myself, Dan Miller, make it a great week.